Welcome to Crunching Tackles, where we break down the hardest-hitting social issues in sports on today's show. How have sanctions against Russian oligarchs become the biggest story right now in world soccer? And what does the Calvin Ridley suspension tell us about the Balance Act taking place right now between sports leagues and gambling institutions? We will discuss these questions and more. My name is Chad Wiley, and with me, as always, is John Nekrasov. And John, how are you doing this week? I am doing pretty well. I am getting ready for a trip home, my first trip home in like, meaning to Nashville, yeah, in like almost a year, which is crazy. Um, so I am very excited for that. While I am there, I'm going to go see The Batman, which I'm also very excited for. Uh, I'm very excited for cooking that is not mine. <laughs> this is the most, aside from family, you know, is the most important thing about going home. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it, overall, I am counting down the days. I have like two days left, and then I go. So are you? Um, are you kind of? I guess the sports world kind of transitions now to March Madness. It's kind of like this is <gasps> this is true. the time. Yeah, and this Liberty pod- is not present. No, they will not be there. This podcast will come out, I guess, two days before Selection Sunday, and I believe that by the time we do our next podcast, this tournament will have started a week mm-hmm. from yep a week from today as of recording uh it'll be this we're recording on a thursday and the acc tournament is in the quarterfinal stage today and then this podcast will come out on friday and then we'll have selection sunday on sunday and then we're going which is crazy i can't like this time last year i was in indianapolis yes yes you were which is wild that feels like it was a lifetime ago but hmm. that's it was funny only a year ago that's strange <laughs> how are you though I'm doing well. I um I've already seen the Batman twice. Um, I saw it That's on Thursday good. when it came out at seven, and then I saw it again on Tuesday. And the fact that I went to invest six and a half hours into this product means that I must have enjoyed it, and I did. And I can't wait to talk about it more when uh, when next time we podcast when you have seen it already. But for now, I'll just say I feel like this is one of the better superhero movies I've ever seen top five superhero movie conversation Mm -hmm. um top two batman movie and i can't wait for everyone to see it so we can have a big conversation about it and i just i loved the experience we already discussed this via text though but it is at best a top three batman movie (laughs) and why is that (laughs) and that is because i i seriously doubt personally i thought about this for a long time i'm not a batman purist by any means it'll be hard for me for this movie to pass the Dark Knight. But the Dark Knight for me is firmly in the number two spot in greatest Batman movies of all time. <laughs> Simply because the number one spot of greatest Batman movie of all time does in fact belong to the Lego Batman movie. I'll be taking no further questions at this time. You're not the first person to have this take. <laughs> it's a bad it's one. It's correct. It's a correct one is what it is. <laughs> it's fine. Find me a more self-aware Batman movie that has such deep characters and witty one-liners. It does have witty one-liners. I'll give you that. <laughs> it, it is the funniest Batman movie. That's facts. In the sense like of like consciously trying to be funny. You could argue that the, the, the Adam West Batman. Batman Beyond is the most ironically funny movie. Well, that or Adam, Adam West's or, 1960s yeah, or Batman. 1960s those are, those are horrifying. Yeah. But see, but even, even the Lego Batman movie refers to the Adam West Batman when it has the uh, the shark repellent spray. And yeah. they're like, oh, yeah, that doesn't do anything. No, but there... touch that. We'll talk about this next week, but I'll just... To, to tease for anyone who hasn't seen this, there are parts of this movie where when you start giving Batman superlatives, like 
best scene in a Batman movie, best Batmobile, best Batman character, whatever, all these things. There are several of those categories. That all belong to the Lego Batman movie. That will belong to the Batman. <laughs> definitively. <laughs> and so I can't wait to talk about it. It's going to be great. I'm, I'm very excited to talk about it. John, we have a lot to talk about on this podcast, but before we do, I we just do. want to mention briefly, just we haven't talked about it this year, but a whole lot, but this is Coach K's final season. Mm-hmm. And I really I really enjoyed the the final regular season game in Cameron. And not Since just you because won. UNC won, but also <laughs> like I found the entire thing incredibly meaningful. The fact that like ninety six players former players of his showed up to just stand in a group in the stands and watch this game and be part of this event. Like, I guess there aren't many coaches who have meant so much to a program or, or who mean so much to their players as Coach K does. He seems unique in that way. Obviously, it was one of – Durham was one of the hottest tickets in sports of all time. Mm-hmm. Tickets were going for, like, $80,000 a ticket on the StubHub. People not even like on the internet, but someone said that he was asked if he would sell his tickets for one hundred and fifty thousand dollars each, and he said no. Oh my goodness! Um, yeah, so it just you know a huge scene, a huge moment, but also just an incredibly moving tribute to a man who has meant more to college basketball than any other person has in the history of the sport, who seems to be more beloved by his organization and by his players than anyone else in the sport, and who's just the the goat of his sport. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So you don't describe it all to like the, the UNC fan position that coach K is like hogging attention by doing like a victory lap here. Cause I've seen that a lot. No, I completely disagree with that. Okay, I don't think Kobe did either. I, I didn't, I didn't mind when Kobe did a, a, a year long tour and like mm-hmm. he would go to the stadiums and they would like, all like give him gifts. Like it doesn't bother me at all. Yeah. If anyone deserved it, it's him. Yeah, which is fair. I didn't realize how long he'd been. Like, obviously, I understood he'd been coaching for a long time. But when I looked at it, and I was like, since 1980. 42 years. Like, that is a long That is yeah. a long time. Yeah. and It's a long time. Being a fan of his arch rival, the school that has given him the hardest time, like, he's mm-hmm. beaten. He, his winning records against schools are usually pretty great. But it, against UNC, he's like 50 and 48 or something. Maybe like 50 and 47. So it's much more competitive. But I... I I'm not the kind of person who's going to be like, oh, Coach K is the worst because he's a Duke guy. Like, to me, mm-hmm. everything good about the sport of basketball, the sport of college basketball, Coach K embodies. Everything good about yeah. it. He's just, he's just the best. He's one of the greatest coaches in any team sport. I, mm-hmm. I, well, that's, yeah, that's just objectively true. I have so much respect for the man. I wish him well. I wish him no success in the tournaments, but <laughs> I do wish him well in life. And, yeah. it, you know, if he did win a national championship this year, that would be incredibly fitting. I watched him beat Syracuse uh, earlier today in the quarterfinals of the ACC tournament. So, Also, he just does not look his age at all. No. Quite no. honestly. I look, and I think maybe he, like, I don't know if he, like, colors his hair or something. I think that may be what it is. I, don't know. I looked at him, and I was like, ain't no way that man is as old as he actually is. Mm-hmm. Like, I was actually shocked when I heard, when he was like, he's what, 75? I think so. I yeah. was like, what? Really? Like, yeah, that was interesting. A, a military uh, veteran. Great career. Mm-hmm. Um, yep. Served at the DMZ during the Vietnam War. And great head coaching career. So mm-hmm. good. shout yeah. out to Coach K. Goated. John, there are two stories we want to touch on. And the first one is a headline that came out earlier this week, which is that Falcons wide receiver Calvin Ridley 
is suspended for the entire 2022-2023 NFL season because on a trip to Florida when he was not playing due Mm -hmm. to mental health reasons, Kevin Ridley got on his phone and placed three bets on a betting app worth a total of uh, Mm $1,500. They were parley bets, meaning that they... You have to you bet on you pick multiple teams to win, and then if all three or all five or all eight of your picks win, you you win a, a big amount of money. In every single bet, he betted on the Falcons to win, and then obviously betted on other teams as well. And the NFL has a partnership with a program that monitors these kind of things to detect any player or personnel activity on gambling sites. It flagged this error. Calvin Ridley admitted to it. He went on Twitter and explained exactly how much money he bet and other things like that. And he is not going to be playing this year. And there's a lot to this. I think there's a there's a level of change to the, to the way that sports are viewing gambling right now, where it used to be this taboo thing that sports leagues mm-hmm. didn't recognize, and now sports leagues across the world are are engaging in multi billion dollar partnerships with gambling, but also heavily restricting players coaches referees league personnel from participating and i think that for many people that's an understandable position um there's more i want to talk about with the specifics of this suspension but obviously this is a something that's gone way back to pete rose being suspended for life for gambling even further back shoeless joe jackson being expelled from baseball for match fit for game fixing during a world series at the behest Mm -hmm. of, of of uh gamblers and so yeah, there's, there's a lot to this. I don't know if you want to jump in and just give some general impressions. Yeah, I think it's but this whole situation is interesting because the sports betting world in the U.S. is really developing very quickly. And there's a lot that's kind of still undefined about how things are going to work moving forward, right? Like, I was just reading about this in the Times earlier, um, and... You know, sports gambling has been legal in Nevada, you know, in Vegas and stuff for a long time. Um, But in most of the U.S. under federal law, sports gambling was completely illegal. Um, So you could go to Vegas if you wanted to bet on stuff. But in the rest of the country, until 2018, when the Supreme Court struck down that federal law, sports gambling was not something that was in the U.S. specifically, was not something that was particularly widespread, obviously. And so, you know, leagues had a pretty complicated relationship to it. Um, But obviously, you know, if you look over in Europe, sports gambling is a huge part of the soccer world. Um, Tons of teams have gambling sponsors, sponsors on their shirts, you know, gambling ads on TV, on advertisement hoardings, uh, by the sidelines. Sports betting is basically a huge part of the soccer world. And, you know, we've both, I don't know if we've ever talked about it on this podcast, but it's a huge part of, you know, dealing with that and dealing with gambling addiction is something that over in the UK people talk about a lot. Mm -hmm. Um, Here in the US, this is all relatively new, but leagues, now that things are largely legalized on a state by state basis, leagues like the NFL are adding a ton of gambling partnerships. And obviously, making a lot of money from them because people want to gamble on sports, basically. So the NFL has basically said that they intend on taking, specifically with the NFL in this circumstance, they intend on maintaining a still a firm stance on making sure players are not involved in this. Um, And so that kind of brings us to the point where we're at today, you know, where a lot of rules and such are still kind of undefined. But 
the NFL seems pretty clear that this is one rule as they're trying to figure out how this industry is going to work in relation to sports. Players being involved is something they draw a very firm line on, um, which some people have said, you know, is hypocritical as the league is taking money from that. Um, so I don't know what where you want to go from there. I think a lot of the questions here and questions that Roger Goodell brought up are just questions of sporting integrity, basically, like match fixing, like you talked about. Yeah, so the competitive integrity point is is the whole point, right? So yeah. And leagues have been conscious about this in all sorts of things. For the NBA, it was the process and intentionally tanking. And they took a, they took a stance on that to eliminate that from the sport because that impacted the competitive balance of the game. Right. In the NFL, we've had uh, Spygate, we've had Deflategate, we've had Bountygate, all these gates, whether it's spying on the other team's training se- uh, uh, practices and training sessions or changing the the actual football to a different size or in bounty gate you know putting out asking defensive players to injure other players to help you win games like all that kind of stuff is competitive balance stuff that the league takes very seriously my thing with gambling though is that not all gambling impacts the competitive balance of the sport mm-hmm. if a player is inactive or not playing that week for due to injury or another reason, and they place a bet on their team to win or lose, they have no impact over whether or not that actually happens. If a player is playing and he bets on his team to win, there is nothing he can do to impact that bet other than play hard, which in theory he should be doing any anyway. There are on, the only instances in which gambling impacts the competitive balance is if a player or coach bets on their team bets on themselves to lose that's something you can have a direct impact on based on the way you play you can intentionally lose a game you can't just make yourself win a game otherwise everyone would be doing it and then the other example is obviously referees can't bet either way because they have so much impact over the way a game can go and there was a there was a big scandal with a with a nfl official several years ago um, I don't remember if he was placing bets or just or uh, if he was taking money from someone else who was placing bets but either way and so to me like for Calvin Ridley to be suspended for a year for placing a very small amount of money bet on a game that he had no impact over the outcome of over a bunch of games because it wasn't just his team it was all these other random teams mm-hmm. I don't get it it doesn't make sense to me the suspension makes no sense because there was no competitive integrity issues. And, yeah, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, I think that it, the, the issue is is not what his impact was, but the principle of what they're trying to maintain, right? They're, I think the principle is that if you start allowing players to gamble in any capacity, in my mind at least, the amount of policing you have to do to make sure that every player is placing bets that, you know, are not impacting competitive balance becomes astronomically higher, right? Because you don't you don't just bet on you know winning games. You bet on all kinds of things, yeah. right? You can bet on the amount of catches you make, on the amount of receptions you have, um, on quarterback yards. Like in soccer, you can bet on basically any fact that happens in a game. You can bet on you know like time of game that someone gets a yellow card in, right? You know, and so so there's still I think are issues where you're going to have to be a balance making sure that all those bets if you allowed players to bet positively, right, which is restricting them a lot in mm-hmm. the betting market, if you allow them to do that, you still have issues, you know, where maybe say someone bets on themselves to have 150 receiving yards. 
it's completely conceivable for them to then drop a pass potentially that would have put them over 150 receiving yards to make that bet, right? So then you have to police that kind of bet too. Um, so, I, you know, you're limiting things a lot with that specific thing of like only not allowing you to bet on losing, right? So I think, yeah, I think that's a problem. And I think just the general principle that the, the primary issue is once you open the door, regulation becomes way harder and it's much easier for the league to just say there's a zero tolerance policy for this in any capacity and the players don't need the money you know in the premier league betting is a huge like i said is a huge deal and is much more widespread than here so far but they also have a completely zero tolerance policy to both players and staff betting referees betting and also players and staff passing on any kind of information about circumstances it was obviously like insider trading kind of but i don't know i i don't i don't agree i think it makes sense to keep things as they are or you just you raise the uh, the risk of questioning the competitive balance in a way that i just don't think is necessary yeah i think i'm not i don't think that it is a good idea image wise for a league to let players bet in a game that they're participating in whether or not they bet on themselves to win even though if you bet on your team to win or if you bet on yourself to go over 200 receiving yards or over 400 passing yards you can't do anything other than play well to make that happen like you can't you can't intentionally make yourself be better than you were going to be anyway so it may not be a necessarily always a competitive thing but i think i think you're right that the image of that does make the most sense and if, if the nfl's policy overall is just better safe than sorry better just make the line really really strong and then not have any of these complicated situations i guess i understand that too for me i think that it doesn't, you know, all of these issues, even conceivable issues of competitive integrity, don't really apply when the player is inactive and not even with the team. If, if someone's on IR, if someone is on away from the team for personal reasons, if, they, if they're not part of the, the weekday, the week-long preparation, or even mm-hmm. any way a part of the game, it just makes no sense why they wouldn't be allowed to or why that would impact the competitive balance. Obviously, the safest thing would just be to tell Calvin Ridley, go bet on the NBA, bet mm-hmm. on bet yeah. on something else. Like uh, like th- that that makes that that would be the easiest solution. And I and obviously Calvin Ridley understood the rules and broke them. And yeah. he, I understand the suspension, but I don't, I don't understand the application of the rules in this way to a player in his situation where he was not even part of the team that week. Yeah, it, I think it, yeah, a year, it doesn't make sense to me. A year may be a little bit harsh. Yeah. But I most likely what's happening is the NFL is just this is the first thing this has happened since uh, it's a deterrent. Since Josh Shaw, Arizona mm-hmm. Cardinals in twenty nineteen. Right. So this is a relatively new thing and they're making an example of him. You know, which again is harsh on Ridley, but I don't think it's that disproportionate, I guess. I think because you're still part of the NFL, you know, even if you are on IR. You know, you're still part of the league. And until you're no longer part of a team's roster, it seems reasonable to me to just maintain the stance all the way through for consistency. Yeah, that's fine. And if that's if if ultimately the stance is we're just going to take the firmest line possible just for imaging, just to just to make sure that we don't have to mm-hmm. ju- adjudicate these these complicated nuances or have to deal with it on a case by case basis. If they don't want to deal with that and just want to preserve the image of the league and its entire integrity, I guess I'll accept that. Like. It's yeah. fine, but saying, <laughs> I mean, yeah. But saying that you're suspending Calvin Ridley because he compromised the integrity of the game is just not true. 
Well, what they my understanding of what the statement said was that they did not find anything about him actually compromising the game. Right. Right. So they did say that. Okay. They just said that it, it 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 endangers the integrity of the game overall, just the actions themselves. But they did not say that he specifically did that. Yeah, and I would agree. And right. if, if Which the I think main is point is to preserve the integrity of the game, he didn't damage it. Other right. than maybe if they are worried about their image. But it's fine. It, yeah. It's ultimately, fine. <laughs> it's, it's a big deal. And we we should do a bigger conversation about gambling. We were going to talk about this a lot more before this other thing came up. And we will do that later on. But gambling as a whole and the way that it's impacted the business of sports and the, just the amount of money. We'll have a big conversation about that sometime mm-hmm. in the near future. Maybe after March Madness. But... We were going to do that today, but this other story that is uh, really, really quite significant came up. And so we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about one of the biggest intersections of geopolitics and sports to happen in 2022. So don't go anywhere. anywhere, And we'll be right back. And we are back with the big story this week. And John, this is a story that happened this morning, last mm-hmm. night. I believe it was this morning. Mm-hmm. Uh, reports came from the United Kingdom, Britain, that Roman Abramovich, who is the president, no, I'm sorry, owner of Chelsea Football Club, is being sanctioned by the UK government. Mm-hmm. Roman Abramovich is a Russian oligarch, meaning that he is a Russian who is wealthy and has ties to Vladimir Putin. He disputes many of these ties and says that he is not a friend of Putin or closely associated with Putin. It is an undisputed fact that at some point during Putin's uh, reign as president of Russia, that Roman Abramovich served as a, I think the equivalent of a provincial governor. He was like ruling over a prov- over, over a specific region of Russia, something like a provincial governor, governor of a province. What I don't know the exact title, but something along those lines. And there have also been reports that he has not in any way confirmed that Roman Abramovich has at various points handled some of Putin's personal money and his personal wealth to help Vladimir Putin be the billionaire president that he is with assets literally all over the world. And so um, he does have ties to Putin. This is not something that's happening just because he's a a Russian citizen. Um, He clearly has more ties to Putin than just that. But from a geopolitical and a sporting perspective, John, I think part of the magnitude of this starts with the club that he owns, right. which is probably one of the top three, I don't know, top three brands in world soccer. Yeah, I mean, definitely at least top top four, top five, for sure. Yeah, um, yeah so Abramovich owns Chelsea. He bought them, I believe, in either 2002 or 2003. can't remember off the top of my head. And basically transformed Chelsea's fortunes from kind of a mid-grade good club to one of the top clubs in the world um, through his investment. Um, And, you know, Chelsea fans have loved him for it over the years. And he has really, his ownership has really transformed that team's fortunes. And they've won the Champions League. They won the Champions League last year. Um, They've won numerous Premier League titles since that time. Um, But like you said, 
Today, the UK government revealed that it was sanctioning seven different Russian oligarchs, including Abramovich, and that it suddenly placed Chelsea Football Club, which is what makes this conversation important, to a sports podcast in very deep water and completely unprecedented circumstances. Uh, yeah, because let, the UK let, government. Yeah, go ahead. Let, let's, let's talk about specifically what these sanctions are. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, you want to go ahead and just kind of list list them down. Right. So essentially, the biggest the biggest deal here is that all these oligarchs' assets, I'm assuming in the UK specifically, have been frozen. Um, there's a travel ban installed on them now, um, and among Abramovich's assets includes Chelsea Football Club, which is kind of a big deal. He has announced recently, which complicates these matters is that he recently announced due to the whole situation with Russia that he was interested in selling Chelsea to someone else and his asking price I believe is around three billion dollars there are people who have been interested in buying it numerous American businessmen Um, that now is that process first of all becomes much more complicated because basically Chelsea now cannot be sold uh, without a specific license from the British government. They are now basically in control of the sale of all Abramovich's assets if he wants to sell them. And Chelsea, under these sanctions, being sanctioned by the government, now has been hit by a number of different ramifications. So the government has provided a license for Chelsea to keep playing, which was a risk that that might not even happen. Um, But the government views Chelsea as basically a historical kind of asset to the country. And so they're allowing them to continue playing. They're allowing um, staff and players still to be paid. But basically, the government is freezing Chelsea in the sense that they don't want money being sent back to Abramovich anymore. So ticket sales are being cut off. The club can't sell merch. The club can't buy or sell players under the current situation. Three, it's a like a telephone company that sponsors Chelsea's shirts has canceled their deal and will no longer be appearing on Chelsea shirts. Um, and travel money for the team has been cut. The government's basically allowing them 20,000 pounds, uh, British pounds for the per, entire per club. Trip. Per trip, yeah. So, which is like sort of doable in English games, you know, if you're traveling around. Um, but you basically, for flights and for hotels for the entire team, they've got a max of about 20,000 pounds, which may be higher for away European games, but... The Athletic was talking about it, and you know there's a potential ramifications that like players might be flying on commercial flights with the rest of us if that limit actually holds true. Um, and the government is basically hitting Chelsea and Abramovich and these oligarchs where it hurts. And this is really a completely unprecedented situation as far as I know in terms of impacting a club like this because of its ownership. Yeah, I think certainly you mentioned the the ways it impacts Chelsea. The biggest one being that at this moment, no one can buy tickets mm-hmm. for home to home matches or away matches. Meaning that the only people, unless you have a ticket right now, either mm-hmm. a single game ticket that you possess, I've already purchased, or a season ticket, you can't go. They can't sell them. Mm-hmm. The 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 ramification that's largest on Roman Abramovich is that one of the conditions the UK has imposed, if he is going to sell this team, is that he can't sell it for profit. Mm-hmm. Basically, he can sell it for the amount that he bought it for back in 2003. Maybe they'll adjust for inflation. Maybe not. I don't know. Um, and then I don't, I don't know where the rest of that money would go, or if that if that would just become the new buying price. But um, yeah, he's not allowed to make any money off of this off of this team anymore. 
Um, he's not allowed to profit in any way. They can't even they can't even like renegotiate or extend contracts of existing Chelsea players. Mm-hmm. So we could see a huge exodus of teams out of this club if other teams start swooping in and offering these players contracts while their team is in this kind of limbo. Obviously, this is more than just a an impact on Chelsea fans. This is an attempt, an ongoing attempt to in response to a war, right? The war between Ukraine and, and Russia, which we should probably should have mentioned before this this happening because Russia, right. of which Roman Abramovich is an oligarch, has invaded another country and quite possibly committed international war crimes and mass you know, killings of civilians. Horrible things are going on. John, what is this punishment? I don't know if you, if you, if you, how much you know. I know you have Russian heritage, but that doesn't mean you are in tune with the Russian people currently. But mm-hmm. what does it mean for Russians as like a as a symbol, as an identity, to to have a citizen owning arguably the one of the biggest soccer teams in the world? Like, how does this how does this freezing of does it does it hurt? Russia in any way? Like, I know that we're sanctioning all these oligarchs, but does this have any particular hurt on the image of Russia for their owner to to lose this team and for, for Russian, for a Russian to lose this team? I mean, I wouldn't, I'm honestly not particularly in tune with that cultural conversation. I wouldn't say that Abramovich, as in my knowledge at least, holds a particularly like high impact on Russian culture generally, just like, you know, like the, the Glazers don't particularly have like this deep or like Stan Kroenke doesn't really have an impact on American culture. Yeah. You know, yeah. like they're rich people who have lots of money and mm. own teams, you know? Um, so, I mean, I think obviously it hurts Abramovich, mm-hmm. you know, which is, I think the primary objective here. I don't think it's that much of a cultural statement. Culturally, I think it like hurts. the takeover of Newcastle, where Saudi Arabia was trying to use that to prop up their image in the world. You know, right, we, have, because, we have a Premier Club, so take us seriously as a country. Yeah, I mean, people have talked about Abramovich sort of as a similar like sports washing project, but I don't think it's the same because he's not. You know, though he has ties to the state, he's really not the Russian state in any way. Like that's just simply not not a fact, right? While Saudi Arabia as a country was directly trying to take over and has taken over Newcastle, right? Through financial investments. Um, you know, the UAE has large investments in Manchester City. Qatar has large investments in PSG, and those are like state-run things. So Abramovich, you know, again, though he has ties to the state, I don't necessarily view it as the exact same situation. Um, but it definitely will hurt his reputation, obviously. And honestly, I mean, it obviously, I think one of the bigger cultural impacts is hitting Chelsea fans pretty hard. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure, right? When you look at, you know, the transfer market is coming up. Just just from a practical, I'm a fan of a team. I, I, I want to sign my players back. I want to, you know, they'll be able to compete. You can't go in the stadium field there. You can still watch them on TV. Mm-hmm. And I, I do believe that Chelsea can still receive broadcast money. I, I believe yes. I saw that. They yeah. can still receive television money. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, I mean, if, if I was, it's kind of like being a Major League Baseball fan right now. There's, you can't sign any players. You can't really mm-hmm. do anything. There's nothing really to cheer for. You know, your team can, I think in, in this case, Chelsea can still play as opposed to baseball. We were going to talk about that later, but we won't. Yeah. But this is, this is a unique situation. And, you know, as long as Roman Abramovich doesn't find a buyer that he will accept, 
or mm-hmm. or the government won't find a buyer on his behalf. This this seems like it could be something that goes on for the rest of the season. This this limbo could continue into the summer when when signings actually happen and players could just walk out of the club and they couldn't sign any new players. This could be something that goes on for for quite a while. We do know that the idea of forcing an owner to sell a team is not unprecedented. It's happened in America. Mm -hmm. Uh, One of the more recent notable examples we've mentioned before, Donald Sterling, who was forced to sell by Adam Silver after making a racist comment and a disparaging comment. And um, he was allowed to sell at full profit, but, you know, he was forced to sell his team to uh, Steve Ballmer, I believe, is the owner of the Clippers. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so, you know, that kind of situation is not is not completely unprecedented but I don't I can't think of a time where it's been a government and not just a sports league that is taking over this this sale and forcing this for for political reasons well and we've talked about this in relation to the Olympics with China and other human rights abuses with the Saudi takeover and Qatar hosting the World Cup we've talked about this in relation to you know what where is the line that we draw um, for allowing bad actors to be involved in the sporting efforts of democratic countries, right? We've had at least a couple conversations on that. I think it's interesting to see here that, you know, the Premier League didn't take this step. This is a step by the UK government basically to hit one of the richest people of connected to a country that the UK basically views as a state enemy right now. Um, and so in this circumstance, you know, geopolitical things have taken over the sporting interests. Obviously, the government of the United Kingdom doesn't really want to be hurting Chelsea as an institution, right? Mm-hmm. Because it is one of the UK's primary brand ambassadors in a sense around the world. But in this circumstance, you know, those geopolitical goals do trump that. And I think it's interesting. We've talked about how, for example, the UK didn't do anything like this with Saudi Arabia, right, when they tried to take over. Though Saudi Arabia has been purportedly responsible for murdering journalists and a wide variety of things that we 100% view as human rights abuses, they did not do this. And I think a large part of that is probably, or just is, because the UK is trying to preserve some form of relations with Saudi Arabia. And taking a step like this would be a drastic diplomatic action you know, that, you know, bridges, bridges have already been burned with Russia in this circumstance, right? And so I don't think they have any compunction about taking this action. Yeah, I mean, it's an international bridge burning that the right. UK is just a part of. It. And I know that, you know, not to just turn into a political punditry podcast, but this is something that the European Union nations, along with Great Britain and the United States, are coordinating on. Mm-hmm. in the in the announcement and the the carrying out of these kind of sanctions it's worth noting before we get out of here that you know just to talk about on one point yes the UK government is using a football team as a political sledgehammer they're use they they are using a soccer team a franchise with with real fans and real players as a I don't even know what the right word is as a, just a political bargaining chip in this mm-hmm. whole in this whole thing but the idea of sanctioning Abramovich and the other oligarchs, you know, it, it seems to be the most internationally accepted way to impact this war without getting directly involved. You know, right. It's worth noting that these oligarchs, including Abramovich, are the they are they are the only people in Russia 
that Putin actually care about, right? They're, they are the ones who are making him money. They are the ones who are generating the wealth of his country. And they are the ones who actually have his ear. These are the ones that he talks to as opposed to their regular citizens. So Starbucks can say, hey, we're leaving Russia. But I don't think Putin cares if the average everyday citizen can get Starbucks or not. I don't think that's really on his Definitely on his not. Mind. <laughs> but, but these people actually do have an impact. These right. are people that have his, and so to, 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 to actually get to Putin, you have to get to these people. And in this case, sports has become a part of it because this guy owns this team. But these are the guys who, if anyone can, are going to talk, be in Putin's ear, talking to him. And if anyone is going to be able to apply any pressure to ask him to stop, it's these men, these oligarchs who are facing the harshest economic consequences placed on individuals in my lifetime. Yeah, and I think... I think to be fair, you know, I'm not going to draw like two broad cultural conclusions from this, but you know, I think my hope, I guess, would be that this circumstance and the fact that it's clearly hurting both Chelsea's reputation as a club and the Premier League as an institution um, will hopefully make the Premier League think twice about allowing actors from states that are in bad faith. Um, to the rest of the world from owning cultural institutions that we would like to preserve for the sake of, you know, our general democratic health as a society. You know, hopefully that will prompt some more thoughts and conversations about not allowing countries like Saudi Arabia to take over clubs. But, you know, I am not particularly hopeful on that front. But you'd hope that taking this step would make people think twice. Yeah, John, we've still got a couple of minutes here. I know we haven't gone super long today, so I want, I, want to, I want to go one more direction before we close, which is how would you feel as a Chelsea fan? You know, I think on, from, to bring it to America, mm-hmm. we have been asked in, in the greater interest of helping in this war to suffer the cost of paying higher gas prices. Right. That's, that, that is a real thing that actually impacts a lot of people and impacts some people quite harshly. But it's something that we have been asked to do for the greater good to apply this pressure onto Putin and to help the people of Ukraine, people who are suffering a lot worse than we are with our gas prices or than Chelsea fans are with their team, right? These are people who are having their houses bombed and are being forced to mass evacuate and maternity hospitals are being shelled. And, you know, mm-hmm. these are the people who are suffering, not not those of us who have to pay four nineteen for gas. But as a Chelsea fan... How would you feel about this? And would, do you, would you understand a Chelsea fan who's angry with the UK government about this decision? I think probably. I mean, because, again, it's not, it's not any individual Chelsea fan's fault, mm-hmm. you know, that Abramovich owns their club or that these circumstances have happened the way they are or that Russia invaded Ukraine, for that matter. You know, like that is not their individual responsibility. You know the history of Chelsea goes a lot further back than Abramovich's ownership. Um, and I don't think, I don't think your cultural ties to a club are dictated by whoever owns the club at the time. You know, there's been a lot of conversations about, you know, whether it's ethical to support Newcastle or to support Manchester City with the reputations of their ownership. Um, and I think those are all valid questions. Questions about, you know whether you're sending your money in positive vibes, I guess, Mm -hmm. toward those institutions and countries and owners is actually good. And I think that's a serious ethical 
you know, I still haven't really resolved my views on that. And but I do think that probably I think as a Chelsea fan, if I was in this circumstance, I would hope that things would be resolved quickly and that I would find a new new owner and be able to get back to a normal situation. I don't think that would change my fa- feelings about being like a supporter of my club. Yeah. But like when it was a completely different circumstance, but like when Arsenal was thinking about joining the Super League, like I was really mad and that was a much smaller circumstance mm-hmm. and I would have been willing to, you know, go find a championship club to support unless Arsenal decided to change their ways if that had actually happened. Like doesn't mean that my ties are broken, but even in a small circumstance, you know, like football fandom is not the most important thing in the world, right. you know? But I don't think I don't think it severs the emotional ties either, uh, is what I would say. No, I don't, I don't think, think it. Makes sense. I don't think it severs the emotional ties. I I hope that people can have a perspective of selflessness to make sacrifices, whether yeah. it's financial sacrifices like yeah, higher gas prices, higher natural gas prices, things like that, My or trip whether it's going to be so expensive. Yeah. <laughs> or or if you're a fan of Chelsea, something like you know, now well now I can't go watch my team, but also like I might miss mm-hmm. out on. Signing Erling, Erling Holland, you know, if my team can't negotiate contracts and he's going to sign, he might. He's probably going to sign with someone else, and I'm going to be out yeah. of that race. And mm-hmm. you know, from a sport, um, from a purely sports angle, that's a, that's a big deal, right? Everyone wants that guy. Everyone wants Erling Holland. But the the selfless view that we all have to accept is: look at what the Ukrainian people are suffering, and yeah. how can we not do everything we can, everything we can to help them? Mm-hmm. 100%. There, there, there's no sacrifice too too great to help these people especially when it's sports you know yeah. on a totem pole yeah. of things that are really important right. right you know as much as we love as much as we love sports the sports in reality are pretty low in the totem pole i am talking what to the it? guys to the, to the uh the sports is really just all fiction guys and you know you, you, you do have the perspective of even better than i do that ultimately this is all meaningless it's only worth the meaning that we we give to it so that's very existentialist of me, quite frankly. It is. That's kind but, of concerning. But on, brand. <laughs> <laughs> on brand existentialism. Anything else to anything else to say about this? Any other thoughts on anything else you've seen in the sporting world involving Ukraine and Russia besides this being the the biggest thing? I feel like things have kind of calmed down. Last week we we hit on most of the main things and mm-hmm. I haven't really seen a whole lot since then in terms of um responses. Yeah, just that, I mean, a just lot that of, Alex Ovechkin won't actually criticize Putin, but that was to which be expected. We yeah, and, and again, it, it is like I understand. I, I haven't read a ton into Ovechkin's history with Putin. You know, it is understandable why people would not speak out against him as a Russian national. You know, I always would wish that they would, mm-hmm. um, but it is a risk they're taking. You know, so regardless of where he's at, I don't know what he actually believes, um, but. You know, that is what it is. Um, you know, with a lot of the international sports stuff have kind of resolved themselves, I guess, with Russia just being kicked out of most tournaments. Um, so that a lot of those questions have kind of been resolved over the last week. I know the Russian Grand Prix has been uh, canceled yes. and I think just completely removed from Formula One. Yes. Yeah. So that's that was the biggest news I saw this last week. Yeah, I don't have a whole lot to add. That uh, mm-hmm. just, just, you know, in the, similar to how the, the WTA responded to China after Peng Shui, where we're just going to mm-hmm. remove tournaments from, you know, similar worldwide response to Russia, particularly yeah. when it comes to Formula One, World Cup qualifying, things like that. A, a yeah. big story that's, yeah, and a story that's not done by any stretch, 
Mm-hmm. You know, Chelsea will be sold, and we'll, we'll certainly talk about that when that happens. There's plenty more from this war, obviously, that's going to continue to impact sports, and we will be here to cover it. John, I don't know how to transition from this topic back into what's coming up in the sports calendar, but we do have March Madness. We do. And so that'll, I'm, I'm sure we'll be talking about that. We'll have, a, we'll have a big conversation about gambling in the near future as well as really one of the, the dominant interests in sports right now. And I'm sure mm-hmm. we'll, we'll, that'll be an interesting conversation. But as always, guys, thank you so much for listening. Make sure to like and subscribe um, on whatever podcast platform you're using. You can interact with us on our social medias or the podcast social media fan. If you are a mm-hmm. diehard or casual supporter of Chelsea, I'd love to hear from you. Yeah, here, how how do you, how do you feel about this? What 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 is your kind of thought process? What are your feelings on Roman Abramovich? But also, what are your feelings on this decision by the UK government and this you know the sacrifice that you're being asked to make as a fan of a team you care a lot about in the greater good of you know stopping this war? So, if you are a Chelsea fan, please do reach out um, on social media. Let us know what you think. And as always, guys, I hope that you all continue to uh, be well and be safe. And we will talk to you later. All right. Cheers, guys.